Hello, I am C-3PO, and I believe the storyteller is ready. So, let us begin. Rise. This week, the story is about a movie that's often evaluated either as a part of a trilogy that largely didn't work or as the one saving grace in a trilogy that otherwise didn't work. And I really don't think that's all that fair because I think this movie, upon having watched it for the umpteenth time today, is actually very, very good unto itself as its own film. Talking, of course, about Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith, and specifically, we're going over our top six favorite things about this movie. Now, we've done these lists for The Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones before. Basically, this trilogy of podcast episodes is kind of meant as a, a celebration of a time in the saga that's often considered fraught. So, uh, Ross, what do you look for when you're trying to pinpoint the best parts of something that is not perfect, but you generally love? Uh, well, I mean, this certainly hits the bar on something that I I, I love. Uh, and although it's not perfect, it, it's damn incredible. Revenge of the Sith is awesome. And I think one of the most underappreciated things that there is in Star Wars. And I think so I think that certainly puts you in a good spot out of the get go is to know that just like it's enjoyable and it's fun. I mean, you're going to enjoy it and you're going to have fun when you're watching it. So that's beneficial. Um, and so I think it's to not get hung up on that narrative that it's oh it's the prequels and that they have these issues i mean you can enjoy all of the prequel trilogy where you can still acknowledge that there are some issues in a few spots uh in this movie in particular natalie portman's acting and the lines given to her for padme's dialogue are deeply terrible they're just <laughs> pathetic and awful but when you kind of strip everything away and you look at anything else either individually or how it fits in together with the greater saga or for this film on its own. And as long as you're being critical um, and in, in your thinking and in even if you want to just be critical, you're not going to find too many things to complain about, but you are going to find a lot of things that make sense and connect. Um, there aren't too many things that you can objectively say are bad other than like something like that bits of bad acting like Natalie Portman, but Hayden Christensen, for example, that's, that's style. That's a choice there. Yep. Those are decisions being made. And a lot of people hate those decisions, but I think that's also because it's something we talk a lot about is the consistency of Darth Vader. And that's something that is necessary. And the consistency of Darth Vader is extremely strong in this movie. And uh, I think that's uh, probably the first place to, to start out. If you want to, to, to kind of look at, a movie like this is you're able to see the, the story of Darth Vader. So it's it's what's going to be the first thing that's going to that's going to pull you in. Everybody, the the point of the prequels was the the fall of Darth Vader. People thought they were going to see more of Darth Vader as we saw him before. But I think what's underappreciated, maybe right out of the get go, is the fact that look at all the things around that are taking part in this transition. Do you think that's an achievement of? Hayden Christensen's performance that he was able to capture something spiritually on the nose about the character of Darth Vader that he maybe didn't so successfully achieve in his first Star Wars movie or do you think that there's just something tonally specific about this movie that landed Darth Vader uh, I think it's uh, of course there's all those things in general but I just think in terms of um 
the expectations. That's always one of the big things and one of the big criticisms I have for Rise of Skywalker. And I think a lot of people view this movie with a lens that if it's the last thing you're ever going to receive in Star Wars, if it's the last thing that Star Wars ever creates, then people, a lot of people didn't like it for that reason because it was, okay, well, now I don't get XYZ. And a lot of people maybe had those problems with Rise of Skywalker because it uh, prevents other things from occurring because it is kind of the it is the end of a story in in this overall larger sense and it can potentially leave you wanting more and that feeling of lack of closure is a tough thing i think this movie because it has decades of thought put into it is maybe a little more nuanced than you would ever expect it to be and so that's really beneficial is the fact that you're able to see these layers uh, I'm not saying Rise of Skywalker isn't nuanced. I'm saying that I think the acting performances are probably significantly more nuanced than the film itself. Whereas this m movie, Hayden Christensen, that's a, a nuanced performance, a new but nuanced decision making by George Lucas as well. Maybe you can throw it in the Natalie Portman for being just the pure bad. But a lot of it is decision making, and that's fun. And so it's you can just view the whole thing with a really critical and creative eye. Um, and so I, I wouldn't necessarily just boil it down to to just the Darth Vader side of it. I, I was more using that as an example of how you can view the movie. No, and actually, my my first installment uh, on the list, which we'll get to shortly, kind of reflects something that's uh, I think noteworthy about this movie which is that it just totally feels very different from many other Star Wars movies and maybe that was a choice made after some failure on the part of the production of episodes one and two although that seems unlikely because George doesn't tend to be moved by things if he doesn't have to be he has a singular vision um, but there is something like George has always uh, attested that this saga is for kids that the, that these movies are kids movies first and foremost and this is one of the four star wars movies that he wrote and directed and it's not a kids movie at all not like and yeah. i i really noticed that this time and i've gone back and forth a couple of times on whether or not this is decidedly the best movie in the prequels or if we just got to saying that and actually it's also deeply flawed and maybe it's both decided both things are true yeah it is it is the best and it's i enjoyed it on a more nuanced level than i have i think in a number of years when i watched it today um but also not a kid's movie and not funny i'm gonna talk about that in my in my first installment it's i think other than rogue one the least funny star wars movie that's maybe the case um but i it definitely it i think it has a lot of charm uh, and I think if you look at the purpose of the film, it's pretty understandable that there's not a ton of humor. Sure. And I think that it does a good job front-loading the humor. That's right. Do you mind if I just, if I kick this off because we're really kind of dancing around some of my subject matter here? Sh sure. I was, I was going to, I was going to say, do you want me to just kind of kick things into it? But it, by the sounds of it, your number six is kind of what we're already talking about. So let's, let's go right into it. That's the thing, because I kind of perceive this movie as, as, decidedly and deliberately not a comedy in the way the other Star Wars movies are adventurous romps. And specifically, uh, I wanted to highlight the R2-D2 comedy as my number six favorite thing about Revenge of the Sith because though it's overall got a lot of doom and gloom, uh, episode three, there is some signature cheekiness in the opening rescue mission in particular and then in the ensuing uh, arrest by General Grievous's people. So it's so hilarious 
when R2 completely wigs out in order to like gain control or to allow the Jedi to take control again over the enemy. And every little flap and door on his headpiece opens up and every little gadget inside shoots out like a spear. And he looks insane mm-hmm. for a second. And it's just one Swiss of... Swiss Army R2. Swiss Army R2 is just a really great case of good guy getting the jump on the bad guy. That sequence, as well as just previous to that, when R2 uses his oil diffuser and then his uh, blowtorch to attack two droids... Um, it's just, it's some of the best droid action in the movie. In fact, there's not a lot of great droid action in this movie in general, excluding, uh, if you want to consider Grievous a droid, excluding his lightsaber fight, which happens later on. Droids are, are largely sidelined in episode three, but R2's really good in those first 15 minutes. Oh, absolutely. Interestingly enough, when I was watching this with, uh, with Leslie, she was, I, I, I got to the point where. Uh, Obi-Wan faces off against Grievous and for the sake of time and budget um, you know how they're about to do like this big face off and then Grievous gets in he just introduces his Magna Guards and it's like ah you guys you can fight these guys instead and then Obi-Wan just draws the giant uh, kind of vent from the ceiling and crushes them there's supposed to be a big fight there oh okay in order to save time and budget to not have to animate all of that and create kind of a CG mocap kind of clusterfuck for you and McGregor to have to try and uh, sort out with a bunch of people wearing dots and whatnot. Um, they just decided to cut that entire sequence. It was pretty effective because there's a couple of uh, CG moments in this movie that don't necessarily age so well, although not that many. And that's not a place where I noticed the Band-Aid. No, absolutely not. Uh, and the specifically R2's humor, and I love the, the relationship that Anakin has with R2. I think that that's a, in particular a really strong part of the comedy of R2, whether that's like him doing like the get him R2 with the, the little buzz droid on his, on his uh, Jedi Starfighter or whether it's uh, no loose wire jokes. He's trying, all right? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say anything. Something that's not really... Uh dissected very often is the emotion of r2d2 as it relates to anakin skywalker because droid or not a droid this is a droid that feels something in fact most droids in star wars are and and a lot has been said about how it's you know a plot hole that r2 doesn't seem to remember obi-wan or vice versa or anakin doesn't seem to darth vader doesn't seem to remember r2 i'm not too worried about that but uh r2 is probably harboring some kind of mixed feelings about the tragedy of Anakin Skywalker going forward. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, that's a huge angle. And in particular, it's very noticeable. Like the Clone Wars, their relationship grows even more. So that's another really big part of R2-D2. Overall, R2-D2 is used really well in this film. Uh, there's some plot holes to the fact that he gets a lot of these tools removed from him while he's kind of under uh, Antilles' ownership. And that makes a lot of sense. Um, probably because he maybe was very easily viewed as a non-regulation R2 and maybe there was uh, some missions where R2 did some uh, some spying for the rebels maybe early uh, in that time period that would right. uh, maybe make some sense we don't have any stories so it could be interesting to kind of see yeah that's right okay so uh, uh, I, I guess we'll move on to your number six this is your sixth favorite thing about episode three uh, my number six would be, uh, in my opinion, uh, the best fight from from this gentleman, the man who would refer to our lightsabers as swords more so. And that would be uh, Anakin's absolute disrespectful slaughtering of Count Dooku uh, and the decapitation and what should be the end of the Clone Wars 
but overall is a phenomenal sequence uh, from the start of Anakin not rushing uh, Dooku and Obi-Wan doing that kind of like they do the little banter back and forth over like, oh, I was just going to say that I wasn't going to I was going to rush him the way I did last time, and, you know, lose my hand. Uh, and then you have to go and take him and then we don't get the, the two on one advantage. But pretty soon into it, Obi-Wan gets his ass handed to him and he gets thrown and taken out of the fight. And Anakin becomes so incredibly powerful. You see that his powers have doubled. He's so incredibly strong. He's fighting with this anger and hatred. Uh, you have, well, you have fear, you have anger, but you don't use them. Uh, and so with that right there, Dooku is just, he's just setting himself up and you get to see Palpatine watching his old apprentice fighting his new apprentice and he's pushing him along. And so it's really is a great start to the domino fall of Anakin Skywalker. Um, and then the end of the Clone Wars with that. But it's also just a badass lightsaber fight. Uh, and Anakin gives Obi-Wan uh, his fate will be the same as ours. And you get to see a lot of that Palpatine uh, Vader coming out in these two characters. Uh, so I think it's I think it's an excellent kickoff to the film uh, and, the, and a fight sequence that if a little bit longer would be would be worthy of uh, the main fight sequence in a film, but uh, not this film. Isn't it amazing how often our main criticism of a lightsaber fight is that it's not long enough, which really is probably done deliberately at this point. Like they should just, we should get out of here and leave them wanting more. That's like a, a classic storytelling device. Um, I also think it's an excellent way to start the film. So I'm, I'm kind of hung up on something. Uh, maybe I just misunderstood about what you just said about how this really should be the end of the Clone Wars. Do you mean it, it like it should be a part of the TV series or it should be the end of episode two? No, I, sorry, I mean that in the sense that uh, Grievous is not a formidable uh, enough leader to lead the Clone Wars to continue on as a war. Right. Uh, and so this is Anakin putting, like, the, like, he's closing the coffin. Obi-Wan nails it shut by being sent to Utapau to kill Grievous. And that also spurns Anakin a little bit in the sense that Anakin is the one who ends the Clone Wars. And he's not given kind of the opportunity to join Obi-Wan to go take out Grievous and officially end the Clone Wars, which, I mean, Anakin shouldn't want to do that, but Palpatine knows that he wants more and he's not like Jedi and he, he does crave power and he is cocky and so he craves opportunity like that. But uh, it, no, it's just in the sense that Dooku is the only reason that this war can persist. That's the reason why Palpatine needs to keep him for so long is that Dooku's the only one strong enough to lead all of the separatist worlds into thinking that there's something. He, he is a courageous and respected enough uh, and uh, well-spoken enough leader that he, he's got the respect that Grievous just doesn't have. Yeah, I think the only thing it's lacking is that we haven't really had an opportunity at least not in this movie. There's a little bit of it in Attack of the Clones. But in general, Count Dooku is kind of underserved. We, I think we've talked about that on the podcast before. We kind of don't reach quite a, a menacing pinnacle for that character. But it doesn't really matter in this case because we, we know enough to know that he's dangerous and he's powerful and he is the enemy. Um, and we also know what the heroes in the movie don't know at this point, which is that Palpatine is the real enemy. And so we can start to see the puppet mastery at work already. And that's what makes this a really important scene for the development of the character of Darth Vader. like, And it really establishes immediately as soon as you started this movie, okay, now watch this guy turn. Yeah, absolutely. And you even, you get to see kind of that, 
the back and forth, but then even Palpatine brings up uh, the the Sand People. I think there should be more Qui-Gon in this fight. I think Qui-Gon should be used as a taunting point from Dooku to Anakin, more so than even just like, because he uses it with Obi-Wan. But I mean, I, you would think Palpatine would try to share the knowledge with Dooku to play on the Qui-Gon relationship, or maybe that was dangerous. Maybe that, that was something Palpatine specifically uh, didn't want he just didn't want Qui-Gon ever brought up because Qui-Gon was, was a, a good thing for Anakin. Or, but at the same time, pulling on heartstrings was kind of Palpatine's favorite thing to do with Anakin to torture him that way. So I love that idea because, I mean, this movie ends like after everything, after Mustafar, after the suit, after the funeral, after literally everything, uh, we have that mm -hmm. final little meeting between uh, Obi-Wan and Yoda. Um about Qui-Gon and it's a real source of emotional joy for Obi-Wan and now that you mention it like it would be a really that really should and me. yes it, it it should be a callback not just a random first mention of Qui-Gon for the first time in a really long time it should be bookending the film emotionally for for Obi-Wan who is still caught up in that trauma I I love that I kind of wish it was there I never it never occurred to me before yeah, and that sequence at the end of the film was initially a little bit longer, and you do get a a, a minor um, like Qui Gon. I don't know whether he showed was showed up in a version of the script or just continued to speak to Obi Wan uh, a little bit towards the end of the film as well. But I think that's going to be a hundred percent leaned into for the Obi Wan show. Uh, will be about his understandings of becoming a force ghost through Qui-Gon and the teachings that Yoda had set up for him there. Uh, and that actually was my number seven moment. That was my uh, honorable mention that Me just too. got missed the cut line um, was that final kind of Bail Organa, Yoda, Obi-Wan. And then, of course, the very end of the conversation, which Qui-Gon? Uh, just the excitement from Obi-Wan is wonderful. Me too. I'm going to move on to number five, my fifth favorite thing about this movie. And I think I've actually just isolated a lot of moments, not so much like moments or or actually um, filmmaking aspects. Um, I think that's the way to do it. Here I'm highlighting the Order 66 montage. Uh, that's my number five. Oh, amazing. Okay, let's just have a, a big old chat then. I, I'm not picking it just because it's given our podcast its name, although it, it it's a really well-executed depiction, I think, of how the galaxy came to be the way that it is when we first experienced it back in 1977. Uh, and it's it's really elegant storytelling. You know how I'm always like fixated on whether or not this is a good idea for the overall story. Uh, it's, a, it's a brutal depiction, and it's classic mm. war movie making, uh, my only criticism is, is that it's really not clearly demonstrated, and you can speak to this a little bit as a uh, student of the canon. It's not exactly clear in this montage um, to what extent the Jedi at large are able to evade this attack. Now, we see a few, we see a handful of key assassinations, some of them which frankly are a little lame, Um and then we're also kind of led to believe that maybe there's some other Jedi out there who managed to get away, Yoda being one of them. And, and I'd like to know a little bit more about that. But the fact that like clone troopers are able to dummy the most powerful Jedi in the world is uh, fine. I would just like it to be a little bit better explained, I think. That said, like the smash cut of all of the, the devastating kills set to John Williams. Of course, that visual of Yoda dropping his cane. It's one of the saga's mm -hmm. greatest moments. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. And I guess to kind of answer that right at the get-go is that's the brilliance of it all. 
is that not only is Palpatine clouding the force, he has a proxy across the galaxy that he has been building trust with the Jedi's for for three years. The Jedi can't sense that the clones are going to turn on them because the clones can't sense that they're going to turn on them. The clones don't think that they're turning on them either. So the clones don't also have like this sudden like guilt immediately before they're about to do what they're about to do. The Jedi's have to realize last minute that the clones change targets. That's all it is. It's just they're changing targets in their war. Uh, and so they're just walking along. Oh, our target's right in front of us. Let's set up the, the, the our turret and let's take up the Jedi. Or, oh, uh, are we all ready to do this? Let's just shoot her in the back right now. This is easy. Perfect. Or, oh, we want to swing back and just use our speeders. It seems like a swift move. So there's thousands and thousands of Jedi uh, in the galaxy at this point, And only a few survive. Uh, we don't know exactly how many survive. And that's the the point of the next 19 years is that Vader uh, and his Inquisitors hunt down the rest of them. Okay. And the, pretty much the only ones they can't find who have any association left with the Force and are still in the galaxy um, are Obi-Wan and Yoda. And so the other ones, whether it's Ahsoka uh, or Ezra um, or potentially other Force users that we may find out are alive during this time period, they're just not galactically available. Mm. And interestingly, Obi-Wan mentions to Ezra in Rebels, uh, and it's a really fun kind of, you understand it, but Obi-Wan understands it. It's from multiple points of view. He says to Ezra, you're not supposed to be here. And it's almost like the fans are like, oh. So all those times when people were like, what do you mean there's some Jedi who's right before A New Hope that he can't, he must die right before the end of the show. That doesn't make sense. But it, Obi-Wan's just being like, this is just not your place or your time. Why are you running into me? I'm, I'm like, you have this other destiny. And he ultimately gets blasted out of the galaxy not too far from there. And so Obi-Wan was right. that he, he didn't belong there. Uh, but then kind of circling all this back to, to Order 66, um, that's the, the the chessboard that Palpatine has set up. He's able to set up to make sure that all the most powerful Jedi have now fallen into this bureaucratic system where the most powerful ones have risen to the top and so that all of those ones have clone troops. All of those have literal battalions of people who follow them, who can turn on them. So the people who would be, you wouldn't need to necessarily hunt out because they're already right there and primed up. And so it's so brilliant to see Cody being one of the only clones that we meet in the movies, Obi-Wan's direct uh, clone who hands him his lightsaber and then just a couple seconds later shoots him. And yeah. so you're never, you just, it, it's just a slap across the face. And like you said, it's it's visually really cool to watch um, and it's, it's a gut punch. Uh, but yeah, Order 66, uh, I can't wait to see it from more different angles. Uh, we saw in Jedi Fallen Order, you get to see it from a different angle, from another Jedi's perspective, uh, and then through like different comics and whatnot. So it's been very cool to see this story told and you can tell it thousands of times more with different Jedi. Well, that's the thing. We saw it uh, most recently with Ahsoka at the end of the Clone Wars, which you and I broke down. And correct mm -hmm. me if I'm wrong, but doesn't, isn't it Cody who then has like a crisis of faith and, and somehow manages to overcome his programming? Rex. Oh, it's Rex. Rex. Right. Rex and Cody are the two most popular clones. So that's, that's understandable. Rex generally was Anakin's right-hand clone, and Cody was generally Obi-Wan's right-hand clone. How does Rex do that? 
he 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 doesn't. He's uh, uh, remember uh, Ahsoka kind of does a mini operation on him. He's he's able to somewhat resist. Uh, in part because Ahsoka is a glitch in the system. Mm. And so he's able to, because she's she leaves the Jedi Order. And so he's able to have a momentary kind of hesitation bit of, uh, 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 what's my programming? And because he has a like a programming issue, it almost allows his conscience to slip in, kind of. Right. And that's enough for Ahsoka to uh, get away and then get the droids to put him into a room where she was able to kind of strap him down and uh, just get the inhibitor chip out of his head. And is it Rex who, going forth, becomes like a high-ranking member of the Rebel Alliance? Yes, absolutely. And so we're going to likely see in the Bad Batch efforts made by Rex to free other clones, provide them their agency back. Uh, and it would be interesting to... That's just a, a heavy assumption because he ha he does free other clones and providing them their agency that we see he's done by the point of rebels. So it makes sense to, for him to do that in the bad batch. And so whether it's the bad batch, Cody is uh, rumored to be coming back in the Obi-Wan show. Oh, wow. So order 66 is going to get continuously more and more weight added to it. And so, like you said, it is, it's such a, a focal point for all of star Wars, but it is also incredibly important for this movie, whether it's Yoda having that, kind of heartbreaking moment where he still has to kind of jump up and decapitate a couple of clones uh, who he'd been there building a relationship with and uh, encouraging individuality. That's the very first episode of the Clone Wars that ever airs is Yoda um, like spending time with clones and kind of correcting them when they refer to themselves as disposable and um, being just the same as one another. And he's like, like, no, not not to the force. All of you are different. All of wow. you unique signatures. You are uh, unique beings. And I don't remember his exact wording, but to see that as the first episode, the air of the Clone Wars, um, another like oh, gut punch when you see him have to do that. So just overall, um, you see these Jedi, they get more stories in the Clone Wars. And so that's that's nice as well. To, but also makes this sequence even harder. Order. It's just really elegant storytelling. So, so rarely uh, when you're trying to build like a great epic, is there a really easy solution for how to make everything fit together? And this is just like a flip of the switch. This is how all the stormtroopers become what they are, um, at least at their genesis. And so, uh, yeah, Order 66, pretty great idea and really well executed in this movie. Is that all you want to say about that? Yeah, I, I know I kind of uh, rambled on a little bit there. So yeah, that uh, that works for me. My number four is just like a concept. It's just the general tragic irony of Anakin's good intentions in this movie. I think the charge that's most often leveled at Revenge of the Sith is that it's poorly paced. And that's something we've kind of been dancing around already this evening. Uh, and that it's it's not so believable that Anakin turns to the dark side as suddenly as he does. And, and maybe that's a little bit true, but I would wager that this if, if, if this movie stood alone, if it didn't have any prequels or sequels, it was just this movie about a guy who is turned to the dark side to save his wife. It was like a Mario Puzo or something. Um, I think that you wouldn't feel that way at all. It would feel like a very graceful transition uh, for the main characters or the 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 um, the anti-heroes internal morals. Anakin is seduced. Um, 
like I said, pre- pretty gracefully. I, we joke around about uh, Darth Plagueis the Wise, and that's kind of a component of what I'm, I'm listing right here. It's actually an amazingly written scene. It's another one of those scenes that kind of brings yeah. everything together. Um, in general, the idea... I'm not phrasing this very well, but what I'm trying to say is that this idea that Anakin essentially causes the death he's trying to prevent with the anger that he's only accessing to prevent that death in the first place, it's very ironic, it's clever storytelling, and it ultimately validates how hasty his turn to the dark side is. It had to be haphazard. It's hasty for him too. He's got whiplash as much as anybody else, but it doesn't seem sudden. It doesn't seem unnatural. It's supposed to be lunatic fast breakneck fast because palpatine works that way yeah palpatine even tells him no i need you i i you know you have to go literally slaughter the entire jedi temple now yeah go now uh, because it's the only way you're going to gain the strength in the darkness and uh it, it works he's able to then go to mustafar and he's able to to kill a bunch more uh separatist leaders with complete ease but at the same time it's just he's building a body count of just killing for the sake of killing and that's extremely dark and i mean it starts out right away with the fact that he chops off mace windu's hands and then that thing things go downhill from there but it's the pathway to hell is paved with good intentions is that the road to hell is paved with good intentions is that the the saying and and that's very much the way it is with Anakin. And I mentioned it before. Uh, who are you going to pick? You're going to pick your, your wife and your father-like mentor? Or are you going to pick uh, your supervisor who will only give you a half promotion and has universally for over a decade not trusted you? Right. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it makes no... Of course, like it make, you're going to side with Palpatine and Padme. Uh, because that's the way he sees it as. And then he doesn't realize when he goes and talks with Padme, he's just like, oh, shit, I didn't, she didn't side with me. <laughs> I guess I don't, like, I don't, I don't and, even quite. That's s- kind of the whole point. I don't even quite see it that way. I don't even think he's like not siding with the Jedi because he says, he kind of like re- reiterates the the dogmatic narrow views of the Jedi when he says the good guys are evil. They only think about other people. Like that's not really true uh like to refute that on palpatine's part is pretty easy because they of course they have an agenda certainly mace windu does Um, but anakin does have an inherent sense of what is right and wrong he knows it's wrong to kill younglings it's just most important to him that he protect padme and his unborn baby like he it's very hard for him to make any other decision it's not even really necessarily about the temptation of the dark side he is just convinced that it's the only way to save his wife and the entire dialogue between him and padme through this movie is look all that matters is that we have each other the only thing that matters is that we love each other your love is the only thing that keeps me going and so if he were to lose that and she were to die the way he lost his mother he truly would have nothing in his point of view. And so he has no ch- he has no other choice but to follow Palpatine. Now, conversely, Palpatine's instructions to Anakin to go, kill all those younglings, kill every other Jedi, do a bunch of killing immediately, it's twofold. Palpatine needs it done, but more importantly, he needs to make sure Anakin doesn't have a crisis of faith and change his mind. He needs to make sure Anakin gets a bunch of kills under his belt so that he's too far gone and has nowhere else to turn but to sheave. Yeah, exactly. Because when he goes and talks to Padme, it's just like, no, only my new powers can save you. And it's just like, what? Right. 
like this is not like like I can overthrow him. We can run the galaxy the way that we want. And it's just it's like it, it, it do you not remember the conversation you had in Attack of the Clones? It's just like you like she specifically says she didn't think that one person should make the decisions for the galaxy. Uh and uh I, I thought you were much too frightened to tease the senator Anakin. You should know a little bit better here. Uh it's it, it's a it's a there is some whiplash for sure, but he makes a clear decision when he cuts off Maze's hand. Yeah. And at that point, he has made the clear that everything is about saving Padme. And it's just easier after you chop off Mace Windu's hands to then side with Palpatine. I'm not saying it's then easier to kill a bunch of people, but that's why Palpatine does it. Because then he says, okay, if you do then kill a bunch of people, everything else after this is going to be easy. So just do this one more, you know, murder spree. Right. And then it'll be fine. <laughs> that's That's why I'm saying... The, the irony of that choice is, is kind of my one of my favorite things in this movie. And in particular, mm. like I actually think the pacing of this movie gets a bad rap because that that series of events that leads to that ultimate turn makes perfect sense to me. And it, and it certainly did mm -hmm. on this view. So that's why I wanted to, to kind of celebrate that. Uh, should we move on to your number four? Yes, absolutely. My number four is also about Anakin and mine would be in particular his sense of humor in uh, the first half of the movie, for that matter, uh, whether that's from uh, the banter with Obi-Wan about uh, their, another happy landing, and at least they're flying half a ship. I know there's both Obi-Wan lines, but they're about Anakin's doings, uh, uh, whether it's Anakin with the, the buzz droids and the vulture droids and trying to save Obi-Wan, uh, his back and forths with R2, uh, his work in the elevator shaft and kind of jumping back down uh, and cutting the hole in the roof. Uh, just overall, you get to see uh, a cunning warrior and a good friend to Obi-Wan. And it's the Anakin Skywalker that is the Anakin in the Clone Wars. It's he's cool. He He's just overall, he is the hero of the galaxy. Uh, he's the poster boy, as Obi-Wan calls him later on. And, and rightfully so. Uh, it's just an hour of Anakin Skywalker being incredible, uh, taking out Count Dooku, uh, and putting Grievous in a position where he has to run away, taking down Grievous's ship, saving the Chancellor, saving half of the ship, and uh, doing it all with like some serious style. And that's Anakin Skywalker for you. But he's got a good sense of humor in it. Uh, this is where the fun begins. Uh, it's just overall a really cool start to the movie. You don't get the whininess from the last two movies. Uh, the whininess does return later on. Uh, in this film, but in, in an appropriate way. Darth Vader is a whiny character. Uh, Luke Skywalker is a whiny character. Skywalkers are whiny. That's kind of their thing. Yep. Um, but this is maybe one of the coolest hours of some skywalking there is. Uh, and uh, Anakin lives up to the title of the Chosen One uh, in making the council in the first half of this movie, for sure. I think that's a really good call. You've talked a lot about how uh, Anakin in the Clone Wars is such a cool character that he's that he's just a, mm. he's a he's a great reparation for some of what's lacking in Hayden Christensen's interpretation or or or, or his um that that version of Anakin anyway and so maybe you're able to see live action Anakin in a different way I think many of us mm. tend to see the whininess ahead of the sense of humor uh, ahead of the the renegade Mr. Cool action hero um but it's there and it's and yeah. it's certainly there early on in this movie. 
Um, I guess that's the best version of Anakin that we get uh, from Hayden Christensen because Attack of the Clones is a very bad movie. And, uh, well, not I know we love it, but, like, it is it is the worst one. And um, this movie is a very good movie. And so uh, he has a lot of opportunities to, to shine as a hero, not just as an anti-hero. Yeah, absolutely. But you also get a lot of the back and forth and like you you mentioned like i mentioned before with the dooku sequence the fact that you get those two kind of contrasting back and forth right here really does show all those angles and i think that's what hayden christensen does a great job of and matt lanter does a great job in the clone wars is being able to, to play along the edges that make the dark side seem so close and yet it's all such heroic actions that it's oh well, there's no way this character would do bad but everything that they're doing in the name of good has an era of bad about them. And so that's, that's, that's Anakin Skywalker for you. And like, this is where the fun begins. It's a Han Solo line. Mm. And so uh, it's, it just, it really, really works uh, for the character uh, being cool and uh, being a lot of inspiration for the Clone Wars uh, and what the Anakin that we get through that is. And I I adore that Anakin as well. So this uh, certainly kicks things off well. So my number three is kind of a continuation of my last one. I guess in this particular viewing, I was just in a, a certain mood to receive it in a in a particular way. But this is a new addition to this list. It's not something that I ever would have made my list before. Uh, and it's really specifically the moment that Anakin realizes he has to do what he has to do. I've never com- connected with this particular scene until today. Uh, but there's an eerily quiet moment. I guess it, it's it, it, it's the, a, the song being played is it's Padme's ruminations and they're kind of like looking across Coruscant. That's what you're referring that's, to. That's right. So so yeah, it it's basically this like cut between Padme and Anakin not together, but they're both looking at different windows across the Coruscant skyline, and Anakin is is considering Palpatine's temptations and he sheds a single tear, which is a little goofy, but whatever. And it feels to me like that's the moment when he decides, in spite of his better instincts that he has to do what he has to do. And obviously, he's wrong to think that way, uh, but that's kind of what makes it sad. And and ultimately, I do, because we're talking a little bit about about the woodenness of, of Hayden Christensen's performance tonight. That's that's an overly stated thing. I have faith in, in Hayden's growth as an actor. I'm super excited to see him play this character again. Um, probably a, a better actor or an actor directed differently could have made this particular scene unforgettable. Um, and it is kind of forgettable, although it really resonated with me uh, in this particular viewing. And regardless of how forgettable it is, I think it's really important to the turn of Anakin. And so uh, I wanted to to give that scene a moment. Yeah, and, and I think that that's a great way to put it. It's giving... Anakin that moment it's giving the audience the moment to see the fact that yes you may think it's going to be a quick turn but this is literally we're taking a a pause in a movie for like almost a minute here to let you know that the character is going through deep internal struggle they're being they're being torn apart uh and that's really important. You're able to see that the character is having this, this struggle. It's not an easy decision for them. And that clearly it's one that they're able, it's almost like the, the, the Luke Leia uh, at the end of Empire Strikes Back where it's the conversation across the skyline. And it's 
but it's without words and Padme doesn't have the force. So she doesn't know exactly what's going on, but Anakin is really, he's contemplating what he's about to do. And you see the look in Padme's face. It's just kind of uh, sad and confused. And Anakin's is, is scared. It's like, what is he going to do? Like, what am I really, am I really about to do this? Uh, And when he makes up his mind, he makes up his mind with, with conviction uh, and he goes and, and he, he walks with, with vigor towards uh, Palpatine's office. And so it's, it's a tough one where he's supposed to be waiting in the council chambers and he just, he, he can't do it. He just, right. he can't, he can't sit still. He, he tries, but uh, he, he, all he sees in his mind is, is what's slipping through his fingers and what he won't be able to, uh, to protect. That's right. I don't have a whole lot more to say about it. It is interesting that you, uh, that you compared it to that Empire Strikes Back Luke Leia um, uh, interface because I thought of that as well. It, it is notably different because the the there's not a force based communication happening here, but that also is a good thing to distinguish it from the Luke and Leia of it all because Anakin is doing this alone, and that's kind of the biggest thing that that differs him from his son is that Luke is never alone. He always has allies and and. And Vader is mm. even even when Anakin does have allies, he rejects them. So I guess that's kind of the biggest difference here. That's a great metaphor about how in his partnership with with Padme, he 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 still doesn't have what he needs. Yeah, that's that's a really really interesting angle uh, that I, I didn't quite look at it in the, in the same kind of in, in that in that way. But that's that is a really good point that Luke his his friends are able to to satisfy more within him. And like Anakin says, he always, he, he wants more. Uh, and that always that lust for more and uh, control ultimately here is, is, and she doesn't really understand what's going on, but like you said, he's doing all the work, but it's his control and in his obsession, that's ultimately making the decision for him. And this then cuts to my number three, which is uh, the fight between Mace and Palpatine. And so the overall arc of what's going on there. So that fits in really, really well. We're just retelling uh, the movie. And, I think. Uh, the way that the, I know we are, but it's, <laughs> it's working quite perfectly in the way that we're kind of bouncing back and forth on these, but it's a, it's a really good fight. It's a couple, it's slow in a couple spots, but the way it starts out with this kind of like, you are under arrest and the meme upon meme from Palpatine and the, the scream swirl and then the kill on the other Jedi's. So it's a little too quick, but then you get to see uh, an angry and forceful duel occur. And you're able to see this like really cool like window smash sequence, yeah. And the lightning back and forth, the taunting of Anakin, the turn of Anakin Skywalker, uh, in particular the mirrors that Palpatine does between Anakin and Mace and Anakin and Dooku from the beginning of the film, and how that is so direct and but very different because of the, the way that the players involved are positioned in the sequence. And that is extremely well done uh, to show so much poetry within the same film, uh, something that Star Wars loves to do uh, and to have that rhyme there. It is a little bit quick after in the way that Vader is pronounced, but you see so much change in one swift sequence and, uh, and Palpatine, being like, and finally showing his true face, Mace Windu 
ultimately showing his true face the way that and like the way that palpatine wants anakin to see it yeah um whereas he isn't really but at the same time anakin killed dooku without trial and hated it but did it for padme and mace windu wants to kill palpatine without trial but anakin won't allow that because of padme right and ultimately that's where no 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 it's not about morality for you anakin it's about padme and it ultimately it, it, as much as yeah you could say that that's one thing but you can't have it both ways anakin uh, and it makes for a great sequence, but uh, we also just touched a lot about it through the ruminations uh, scene. I kind of just kind of classified it a little differently to be a little bit more holistic uh, and kind of lean a little bit more on the end. But the way Anakin um, is being like, they're just, they're both yelling at him, like, don't listen to him, Anakin. And it's just, and, oh, I'm too weak. And it, it's <laughs> really, really great because then you'll get just this look on Anakin's face of just like, I don't know what to do. He has to make a, he has to make a split decision right. and he makes the wrong one, but everything, the, 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 the spark has been set and Palpatine wins just like that. I mean, I guess the biggest difference between the assassination of uh, Count Dooku and the attempted assassination on Palpatine by Mace Windu is that Mace Windu is right. Like, he is too dangerous to be kept alive, and he does have the votes, right? And so, like, it. Yes. It, if he were to stand trial, he'd get um, off. <laughs> it all feels too real. Um, and, and I don't know if that's the case politically speaking for Count Dooku. Maybe it is. But, I mean, Count uh, pa Palpatine obviously. Um, swayed the final uh mm -hmm. murder in both of those sequences because because anakin is is feeble-minded at his at his uh at his hands uh, one of the great moments i'm not sure you mentioned just now is when that's over and mace windu is dead and 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 anakin is is kind of reeling from what he's just done and uh Palpatine puts up his hood for the first time. Like that's clearly a very ceremonious yeah. thing where you're like, okay, now I know we've seen this guy already in the hood in this movie, but we haven't seen him do the transition. Uh, and so that's mm. where it's, that's where it's all very, very real. Yeah, he walks like the emperor the entire movie, which is great because yeah. that's of course leading in. So you don't need to have him change his, change his strut as well. But he does definitely blend beautifully into the emperor, and so to have him become hideous, and then the hood comes up. It's it, it is a great uh, transition there, and actually um, that that does go well into my number two. But what's your number two? Well, my number two, I, I suspect it, we can we can cut this short if it's going to come up again uh, a few more. Although we're kind of getting down to the nitty gritty here, mine is obligatorily you were the chosen one, and it's that whole monologue. Uh, well, it's kind of a hard one. Like, what'd you like? Yeah, eh, I don't know. How, how did you separate your? Did you separate your one and your two at all similar? No, no. My number one is completely different. Okay, no, never mind then. Uh, yeah, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the incredible battle of the heroes. This is my number one. Um, okay, and so the entire overall sequence, the battle of the heroes, the 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 you are the chosen one, you are my brother, Anakin. The entire sequence on Mustafar. This is incredible. It's, I mean, it's, hang on a second. Do you want to do your number two first? Have we thrown off the order? Uh, we have, but it's your number two. Uh, and so. 
Okay. It doesn't matter, right? All right, let's just do it now. Um, yes. Let's just talk about Mustafar. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I mean, we've, we've praised this scene again and again on this podcast. Um, I mean, I think it's objectively the, the greatest heartbreak in all the series. It's it's the time when you feel the most sad in all of Star Wars. And, uh, or at least, you know, like, yes, that like the, the death of Han Solo and, and like, but this is like where the story is evoking the most overall tragedy. Um, it's performed ex- exquisitely by by Obi Wan, and the thing about Ewan McGregor is that he's often given credit for being the most consistently uh, excellent part of the prequels, and that is true. But it's a largely easier job than Hayden Christensen had, I think, and and pro- frankly, also Natalie definitely. Portman. Like, definitely. yes, he gets to be an action hero. It's physically uh, exertive, but it's a less thankless role to be Obi Wan. Because uh, he's kind of like second banana for most of the most of the trilogy, except for here, where his responsibility is to invoke like the strongest amount of pain and, and disappointment imaginable. He completely nails it. It is the creation of the monster that is uh, Darth Vader. We've already seen him like turn to the dark side, like in his brain and in his heart. But this is where he actually becomes the cyborg, the cyborg, and the disfigured Darth Vader that is iconic and that's what you've been waiting for for this entire trilogy and yet he is upstaged by obi-wan's monologue which tears your heart out the language is uh simple uh and poignant the blocking of it and like the coloration of the sequence symbolic intense i think technically speaking it's probably the best scene george lucas has directed in his career yeah i think there, i think that or well it, it, in terms of Getting the credit for the direction of it, I would say yes, because uh, I mean it, it, he definitely had a lot of involvement with Return of the Jedi as well, and so sure. you can maybe make some argument there. But yeah, I would say I would I would tend to agree with you that this is incredible. the The words that Obi Wan says, like you, the pain that he's emoting, the look on his face and the look on Anakin's face, but him just not being able to look at Anakin and the this just sheer disappointment you were the chosen one and everything that Qui-Gon had asked of him and everything that they had done together all those nine instances uh that Anakin saved his life uh and all of the times through the Clone Wars where Anakin saved the lives of thousands and it's just all for naught uh, and he's so incredibly disappointed. And they've had this gigantic duel where they've gone back and forth. They know each other so well. They're brothers. Mm-hmm. And it was so clearly shown in this duel where they just read each other's minds left and right. And there was even points where they wouldn't even cross sabers uh, because they were playing chicken with one another in the sense that they were both just doing these ridiculous spins, trying to find the one opportunity to come in at one another. And they both do it at the exact same time. Uh, You just see throughout the fight, and as much as it's so acrobatic and over the top, of course it is. And the way it ends using the same, Anakin trying to use the move that Obi-Wan uses on Maul, and the I have the high ground, and don't try it, and the arrogance that comes from that and Obi-Wan learning where Anakin doesn't and what that means for their next encounter, which we're going to find out about and whether or not it's spiritual or physical and whether or not their next physical encounter is on the Death Star or in the Obi-Wan show. uh, It's still also, you get to see a lot of this 
return again in their confrontation on the Death Star. Um, but I'm so excited for what this is going to mean for the next time these two meet up. Um, I was but the learner. Now I am the master. So I mean, I'm expecting Obi-Wan to win if they face each other again. But it goes to show that, yeah, ultimately, and Anakin was stronger. Uh, he couldn't beat Obi-Wan because he just he had all this this anger within him and it clouded his judgment. If Anakin was at his if Anakin had clear mind and he had and you just do a sparring session with Obi-Wan, he beat Obi-Wan 10 times out of 10. Yeah, of course. But because of the the anger, and as much as that makes him stronger and gives him focus, as Palpatine would like to say, uh, it does cloud him at the same time. And Obi-Wan's understanding of him uh, and the ability to see clearly, uh, it, it's it's just, it's, it's, it's extremely... Uh, it's just an extremely powerful scene uh, and, and it ages so well. I could watch this scene a hundred times over and it still wouldn't lose any emotional weight. One of the reasons it's going to be so critical to see them face each other again and, and hopefully like do battle one-on-one uh, -on -one is that, I mean, obviously a lot of time has passed between this particular Mustafar, Mustafar duel and the one that was the original duel between them in A New Hope. And so uh, they've both had time to reckon with their emotions over what happened that day. But even still, what happens between them when Obi-Wan is struck down um, is decidedly unemotional. It's very cold. And, and yes, there's dialogue about how they are old associates, but it's not clear that he once loved him, you know? And, and that's partly because it wasn't mm -hmm. clear to George at that time. But, like, uh, it, it, it's so heartbroken and emotional here, and, and we need to see some kind of middle in between those two states. Does that make sense? I think that that's a really good point, uh, and that's because it goes back to what happens in Return of the Jedi. Uh, in A New Hope, you're right, he is detached, and in Return of the Jedi, you say, Obi-Wan specifically said that the good man who was your father is gone. Um, what's left is twisted and evil. And uh, it's he doesn't think there's any Anakin left there anymore. Right. And so we need to see, we need to see his belief that Anakin could still return to, no, this is just Obi-Wan needing to teach this Vader guy a lesson about how the Force works and how, oh, you know how the one thing you wanted was to live forever and make others live forever? Kill me, and guess what? Gonna live forever! Uh, and so it's... <laughs> it's a great point. It, it, it's another one of those kind of taunting moments, and it's it's used just purely to service the relationship between... Like, he, he even waits until Luke is able to view them. He's just waiting for Luke to be an eye shot. And then he's like, okay, now you can kill me, Vader. Let me do my battle meditation like Qui-Gon. You don't even realize the fact that you're disrespecting your very first master by killing me during battle meditation. Um, but I'm going to make this even a little bit more uh, of a dirty cut. But it uh, it's going to be really exciting to see them face each other there. Also, uh, you were my brother. I loved you. Um, the line being at one point, um, I love you but I can't help you. Yeah. Um, and Obi-Wan saying uh, he, he, he can't, he can't still love him. He, he has to, if he loved him still, then he would help him. Mm -hmm. He has to say loved 
because he has to begin the detachment process. And George Lucas was like, yeah, I agree with that. <laughs> and I thought that was like, oh, that's a really cool like behind the scenes nugget there. And you can you can see the the mouthing of, of the help because he's just Anakin just he's, he's just he's asking for help. He's trying to come back. Uh, and uh, Obi-Wan knows that, no, this is just a, a burning corpse saying what he needs to. <laughs> right. But there's that's something I never thought about before. But there's such a uh, and I talked a little bit about about the simplicity of this dialogue. And what you just said, what could have been the line is good. Um, but this is better because of in part because of loved you there is a difference the back and forth is i loved you and what does anakin scream i hate you current present tense mm -hmm. and there's something there's something subtly distinct about those two things i loved you in the past i hate you in the present respectively by different characters but obi-wan doesn't say i hate you he could never hate him they that that just like yeah. very clear like distinctions with how they think about other people <laughs> and and in, in general like lead with love lead with hate i didn't say that very well but i there's those yeah. two lines as they contrast each other really kind of say everything you need to know about the two different ideologies of the characters yeah and also absolutely but the and then of course the pain behind this scene yeah like you have somebody who's just so angry and he has this hate for no good reason. And this other character who has all this pain and this loss and this loss from losing someone that he loves, who's murdered by someone that hates him and that they're the same person. <laughs> I know this is not the first time that we've had like an uh, in-depth discussion about this scene in particular. Oh, I, I like to think we're saying new things about it. I think we are because it still feels like a rich text. Yeah. I hope so. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah, absolutely. Um, with that said, I was going to say, do you want me to go to my number two? Because you've got your number one left. That's all we got left. Yeah. Yeah. So my number two, because uh, that was my number one, my number two would be the transition itself. Uh, the transition between the Galactic Republic and the Galactic Empire. And that would be whether it's Palpatine's uh, speech that results in thunderous applause that liberty dies within or whether that would be the Star Destroyers, the Ventators representing them, uh, the Jedi Starfighters that are starting to look like TIE Fighters, uh, or, and just the, the, the Tantive Three at the end of the film, uh, the, the shift, the, the meaning of the Rebels that was cut as a deleted scene. Uh, you see this, obviously, this particular element is turned up on steroids in uh, Rogue One, but it's really impressive the way that you're able to set up a transition over 13 years to see the galaxy change and then set up the galaxy in a position to where you will know exactly what it will look like in 19 years beyond this point and be able to see that fresh position of all these new things being introduced, the clones and how they will transition to the stormtroopers, the decommissioning of the droids, uh, and the way that the entire dominoes of Palpatine's plan are now just fl fluttering out into uh, the perfect imperial array. And it's just, he's the, the plan has succeeded. And uh, we have now gotten to our position A that we started this entire journey with. Uh, and that, of course, beautifully ran, uh, wraps up with the twin sons. Uh, but I would say from a more political uh, and infrastructure-based perspective is the the true beauty of this film 
that I, I really, really love to see is how well they've uh, positioned the galaxy to transition to the Empire uh, and to the one that we know from 1977. Yeah, and something else I noticed about this movie when I watched it this time, and it's amazing that I can watch these movies dozens of times and have a completely new take on it. That's like such a wonderful thing that that's really shows a good movie and a love for a good movie. Um, so obviously it's an action movie it's a Star Wars movie but remove all the action from it it's the chattiest Star Wars movie I think by a landslide I don't know what like the page count is in the script but like it, there are parts of it that almost feel like you know a mammoth play or an episode of the West Wing like it just gets really jargony but it's well crafted and I see that Empire is the most words per minute that'd be my guess that, that that's fair and it's also a, a political movie but in in different ways i just think that the prequels get all mm. a, a kind of a reputation for like being too political and this movie is super political but none of the politics don't make sense unlike in phantom menace where it's really crowded with politics it's really tidy it makes a lot of sense. trade federation yeah it, it that's that's useless to me but this this movie is is really there's not a lot of fat on the politics here and that makes for the conversations which are do not involve chase sequences or or battles to still be really interesting because it's like again it's like you're watching theater and so i think you're i think you're absolutely right yeah and and from a political perspective i think that's a really really good point too in, in that you have politics that's easy to understand uh, but politics that's deep and you can die. We've already like taken a, a nice deep dive into a couple different points of it here already, but it's interesting that you're not getting the kind of politics that cannot be understood. Like I understood this as an 11 year old right. in 2005. I understood all of the politics in this movie. I understood none of the politics in any of the Star Wars movies up until this point. Yeah. Uh, and I guarantee you, if I had been seven years old and watching this movie, I still would have understood the politics in this movie because it's very straightforward. Now, would I have understood all of the politics? No. But would have I understood all of the major plot points? Yes. And that's something I definitely missed in The uh, Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones uh, in the times watching that as a little kid. And so I think that it uh, has... a Although it is the most adult of the films, it is very accessible. Uh, I do know, though, that um, I listened uh, to a podcast, and in particular, the, the podcaster's daughter, the only one he's not allowed her to watch is Revenge of the Sith, because it's the most grown-up one and, yeah. and, know, and knows that she, she is not quite old enough to be able to handle it. And so I think that's interesting, but that scene where he kills the younglings. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a great example of what kind of like removes it from being a kid's movie because like that is, that is traumatic and wild. An often sourced example. It's, it's the main cited example of where the movie gets like darker than you expect anything on Disney plus to get. And maybe darker than is needed. Sure. Absolutely. Uh, listen, <laughs> this is a great setup for my number one, which is essentially a component of what, you, of what you just listed. It's just specifically, so this is how Liberty dies with thunderous applause. This is like a small redemption for an otherwise lacking performance. You've mentioned the flaws in Natalie Portman's performance. Padme mm. deserves so much better. Not better than Natalie Portman, who is all by means a great actor, but a better opportunity to be a greater character. Uh, this line demonstrates, I think, her potential as a character in live action. Star Wars is 
we've said this before, it's always at its best when it's reflecting relevancy in real life. The concept of wickedness prevailing to a score of uh, ignorant support is all too real. And George Lucas knew that long before this era. He knew it 15 years ago, 16 years ago. He knew it 45 years ago because he's always been a deeply thoughtful culture critic. And he's used Star Wars to... uh, uh, share his feelings on the world. Um, it's not only a mirror one, to it. It's not only one of the greatest lines in Star Wars. It is one of the great lines in movies. And in fact, it doesn't get its due. Like you could look up a lot of listicles about the best lines in Star Wars and the "No, I am your father." And it, it, I mean, it did. You're right. But like m- most lists would be would be playing the hits. The uh, "Do or do not." There is no try. The "No, I am your father's." That's fine. I love you. I know. Uh, this is not a meme. It's not a, a like a greatest hit. It just happens to be fucking phenomenal. And I yeah. And I it's it's too perfect for me not to put it at number one. Yeah, I, I'm. Uh, I I had it within my number two. I had to mention it there. There's no way it was not going to get mentioned. It is a bananas good line for a character with so few good lines. And it is a, it's a line that is so instrumental in the purpose of the character and the point and the beginning of the rebellion and why this needed to be used more in the film. This is probably one of the biggest mistakes in Revenge of the Sith, in my opinion, is the deletion of the scene where she meets with Mon Mothma and Bail Organa. Yeah. And they talk about basically the start of the rebellion. <laughs> uh, seems like kind of a useful scene to me, one that should have stayed. But... Uh, the character is so consistent with the character that we get in the Clone Wars and the character that we get in uh, the novels and also Leia. And so this is really a powerful line uh, showing uh, a strong leader. And I mean, that's the thing. Padme has done incredible things in these two movies. It's just we've seen her at her lamest uh, and in execution, executing those areas in just a really cheesy cheesy way truly deeply madly hopelessly endlessly love you and uh like i need to tell you that before we go out and get murdered by all these little bugs but right. uh it, it, it's it's definitely a well-deserved line uh and feels out of place for how many bad ones she has but it is almost like you could build an entire movie around this line yeah uh, it would just be incredible to to see more stories of the potential of what could have been with uh, Padme starting the rebellion and uh, what Mon Mothma and Bail Organa will uh, will do in those early days to kind of honor that. And so I'm curious to know what kind of stories will be told beyond there. And I'm really excited to see um, I forget what it's called the uh, Queen's. Uh, means something the third in the in the next Padme series of books the trilogy that will show her perspective of the end of the Clone Wars which would mean likely up until the end and through the end of her death and so that'll be extremely uh, interesting to kind of see uh, a live uh, recount of uh, her mind during this time. Sounds great. Okay, uh, that's our list, right? Do you want to go over a couple of, let's not uh, talk about too many that might have missed the cut, but it's interesting that uh, neither one of us have mentioned uh, the Yoda-Palpatine uh, Senate chamber fight at all. 
and it's you know it's a little it's I, I I I've talked a lot about how I feel about Yoda using his lightsaber. I think like the tossing of the chamber pods is kind of fun. Yeah, it is cool. I had such a clear set top seven though. It was so easy for me to find my top seven. Yeah. At, like I went through it. I was like, okay, no, let's list my favorite things, like the things that easily need to make my list. And I was like, oh, that's seven. And I, I couldn't find anything that came close to cracking through those. And so, I mean, from an honorable mentions perspective, I think we I, I got some nice holistic ones. But Obi Wan, uh, not just at the end of the film, uh, the uh, entire kind of journey that he does on Utapau with Grievous killing Grievous. That's extremely cool. I think killing Grievous is cooler than the Yoda Obi. Uh, sorry, the Yoda Palpatine duel. Yeah. Uh, the the back and forth before the Yoda Palpatine duel, I prefer. Uh, it's when uh, and the kind of the throwing of the Force and how like Yoda catches it and uh, it's it's just overall it could be it could have been done maybe a little bit better. It was great in concept and then throwing the pods is good, but. Uh, Yoda failing and uh, he kind of loses the lightsaber there. Uh, it's uh, it's it's just it's sad. <laughs> yeah, it is. Uda you don't want him to lose. <laughs> Utapau is a pretty cool planet. That's something I really connected with. Oh, in visually, this yeah. viewing visually, it's like really well designed. I love that 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 hangar is like within the giant skeletal uh, construction. We I don't know what the beast was at one point, but like just like the fact that it's all built within these craters. It's very, very cool. The only other moment that I thought is worth mentioning is like the rise of Darth Vader and that first breath. So not the no, but mm. uh, like that first time you hear yeah. him breathe like Darth Vader. I mean, it's it's Palpatine putting up the hood for the first time times a hundred. Like it's it's a pretty exciting thing. They The movie knows that's what you've waited for. And I don't think it's squandered. No, and I think it's a little cheesy, but... It does great Frankenstein imagery, yeah, and I think that's okay. And uh, the way that the droids are kind of operating on him, uh, the little sh like the the medical like uh, gurney that he's carried on, that's really cool. Uh, entire sequence of taking him to kind of the to Coruscant to get fixed up. Um, but yeah, no. Overall, uh, honorable mentions. I think we've certainly mentioned uh, a lot of the kind of the, the broad strokes throughout. But uh, overall, I I adore Revenge of the Sith, and some people rank their Star Wars movies based on rewatchability. And if that were the case, it definitely uh, falls extremely high on my list. And it falls high on my list no matter what. But. Uh, yeah, absolutely love Revenge of the Sith. It's a good Tamora Morrison movie, more so than I realized. He's all through this thing. Yeah, and his faces for sure. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, it's going to be nice to see some more of him. We can use that as a bit of a transition. Sure, uh, we will be saying uh, some more of him in uh, later in this year. Uh, kind of just uh, some further discussion uh, about it being uh, the four episode miniseries that seems to be just further seeming to be cemented as the way that uh, the Boba Fett show will be. So because that rumor was what we had heard, it does seem to be um, uh, a, a correct rumor that we have heard. Uh, in addition to that, um, not a whole lot in the news, but we do have a casting for the Obi-Wan show. Uh, so Indira Varma, who, who is from Game of Thrones, uh, she has been cast as kind of the lead female role in the Obi-Wan show. I'm not sure if this was the same um, role that was rumored to be for, well, interestingly enough, who played uh, Jasmine in the recent 
I I Aladdin won't movie. I won't be able to remember her name. She's good though. Anyway, she was she was rumored to be in this show as the the lead female, um, but there was no rumors of that officially coming as like the casting choice. So um, might be the case that this is who they went with, but she seems to be a little bit older. No idea what the character is supposed to be playing. Uh, we don't really have any idea if it's going to be a major role or a minor role, but uh, we don't have many casting at all for that show. So right. that's an interesting one to be announced and should be of reasonable size. The Bad Batch as well, uh, that we know is coming out May 4th. That is confirmed and uh, that is exciting. We don't know how long that show is going to be, um, but I'll be curious to know if it's 12 episodes, 16 episodes, 20 episodes. Um, I'm going to probably guess it's going to be like 12 or 16 or 18, but I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm happy either way. They showed an image of what Fennec Shand is going to look like in the Bad Batch. Uh, they're keeping solid with the Clone Wars animation style. And I think it's been, people believe it's generally going to be, the, the vibe of season seven is going to be what they're going to try and continue. So that's that's encouraging because season seven was definitely off the charts for Clone Wars. So this is a younger Fennec Shand, obviously. Yeah, yep, no. So Boba Fett at this time period is a, a young teenager. And uh, well, Ming-Na Wen's 57. So <laughs> if you can, in theory, or make a... Fennec Shand that old and ultimately would be in her inner twenties at this point. So uh, it can, it can certainly work. It, this would be uh, six, 10, uh, yeah, 29, tw- tw- 28, 29 years before Mandalorian. where we are currently now in, yeah. in, in Mandalorian. So yeah, even she could be in, she could be 30 for uh, wow. That is, yes, yeah, she does not look 50. <laughs> Good for her. Remarkable. That is crazy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Really not a whole lot else in the news. Uh, anything that, uh, that you saw? I no. I didn't make a, a, t- a ton of deep a ton of deep notes there, but it didn't seem like anything from first uh, a quick pass to the internet. No, I didn't catch anything other than that note today about the new casting for, for Obi-Wan. And maybe they're trying really hard to keep that show tight because it's, you know, a show in part about isolation. So it won't surprise me if the cast doesn't need to be giant. Yeah. Now... I, she does not have blonde hair, but she has an awfully angular face. So it's not outside the realm. That she could be Satine cool. uh, in a flashback. Um, but also uh, maybe she's a force priestess, uh, which would mean she could be part of, uh, she could be a guide on Obi-Wan's journey to becoming, to learning how to become a force ghost, or she could be just, just a, some brand new uh, character who is just, part of his journey of planet A to planet B, which is probably the most likely. More, yeah, more than likely, she's just a new character. But now that I feel like I have a relationship to Satine, I, I would certainly like to to speculate on that going forward. Yeah, and that would uh, mean it was extremely worthwhile to show those episodes to you and uh, the next uh, kind of batch of episodes that will follow the, the Mandalore-esque arc uh, will reintroduce Maul. So there will be a bunch of great things along those lines. Uh, a few important birthdays. Uh, first and foremost, this Thursday, March 4th, happy birthday to you, sir, Ross Arsenault. Yay! Yeah. Yay. The next day, uh, Friday, March 5th, Jake Lloyd having a birthday. Uh, and on Tuesday, March 9th, a happy birthday to Oscar Isaac. So a couple of heavy hitters in there. Listen, we would really love to see uh, everybody else's top six list uh, or, or anything in particular that they like about Revenge of the Sith, especially if it's something we somehow neglected. I feel like we got a pretty comprehensive 
uh, discussion going about what really rules about episode three, but no doubt we missed something. So uh, if you have any thoughts on this podcast or Star Wars in general, you can always feel free to contact us on Twitter at Recorder66 or email Recorder66podcast at gmail.com. We're available on all major platforms uh, in terms of podcasting. And so please rate and give us a review. Um, oh, there are only like six of you. So uh, <laughs> I'm not talking to the other people who listen to the podcast. I am talking to you the listener. It would be great if we could have your support in some kind of uh, uh, tangible way. Not just to toot our own horns, but because we would love to be able to grow our little tiny uh, Star Wars loving community. We're also on YouTube at Recorder66. Uh, we don't have any plans for what's coming up on the podcast going forward, but we'll let you know. And until we are together again, may the force be with you. Be with you.